find Exodus 19. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters, which means this morning we've reached, when we finish, the halfway point. We're going to spend significantly less time on the back half of Exodus compared to what we've spent on the front half of Exodus. The first 20 chapters we covered in 15 Sundays, and the last 20 chapters we're going to cover in six Sundays. That's mostly because the major stories of the Exodus are behind us, and what's ahead of us is God giving his people instructions about the tabernacle and the people building the tabernacle, and we're not going to skip that, but we're just not going to take as much time to dig through all of those passages. None of that really matters if you can't make sense of Exodus 19. And so let me just mention a few things to help you make sense of what we're looking at this morning. The events of Exodus 19 take place about three months after the Exodus. So you're about three months after the moment where God's people march out of Exodus and they march through the Red Sea. That's about three months in the rearview mirror. God has brought Moses all the way back to Mount Sinai. You remember that was... In the early chapters, I believe Exodus chapter 3, one of the things God said to Moses when he appeared to him in the burning bushes, I'm going to give you a sign, and the sign is I'm going to bring you back to this mountain. God has done that. He's brought Moses back to Mount Sinai. And Israel is going to camp right here, right where they're at, for about 10 months, almost a year. They're going to stay right here at the foot of Sinai. They're not going to really move on in the biblical text until you get well into the book of Numbers. They're going to spend a significant amount of time right where they're at. Now, we have skipped a few stories, some short stories, and I just want to at least uh, acknowledge those. Exodus 17 describes Israel's first battle after they left Egypt, and in the battle, God fought for his people, and Joshua led Israel to a victory over Amalek. And it's an important story on two levels. One, it's showing that God is going to fight their battles, that they're not ready to fight them on their own by any stretch of the imagination. God's going to take care of these people. It's also sort of giving Joshua some street cred because one of these days he's going to have to take over and he's going to be the guy that leads the conquest. And so we're beginning to get experience for Joshua. We're also skipping Exodus 18. That describes Moses' father-in-law Jethro giving Moses some advice on how he should lead Israel and that he shouldn't shoulder all of the responsibility, but he should equip other people to be leaders for the the folks, for the nation. We're jumping into Exodus 19, and one of the things you need to know is that Exodus 19 is a setup passage for the Ten Commandments. This is really, really important. If you don't understand everything we've talked about so far in the book of Exodus about who God is and what he's done to save his people and the great lengths that he's gone to to redeem them and to make them his own, you're definitely not ready to understand the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we make the mistake of just jumping into the Ten Commandments or the idea of the commandments, forgetting that before God gave his people the commandments, he saved them, he redeemed them, He rescued them, and we make the mistake of coming to the commandments as if they're things we need to do in order for God to love us. That's not even true in an Old Testament sense. It's not true in the book of Exodus type sense. God has already set his love on these people. He's already saved these people. He's already brought these people out of slavery, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to spend two weeks over the next couple of Sundays, talking about the Ten Commandments. We'll look at the first table that talks about our relationship with God. Then we'll look at the second table that talks about our relationship with each other. But before we get there, we've got to understand 
all the ground that we've covered. And really, Exodus 19 is a nice summary of everything else that's come before. And it's like the author of the book has just said, before we get to these 10 words, these 10 rules, these 10 laws, you need one more reminder about who God is. You've got to know who God is before you can understand his commandments. And you need to know who you are as his people. And you need to remember all the things he's done to save you before you're ready to listen to his 10 rules or his 10 words or his 10 commandments. The big idea of our passage is really simple. Sinful people like us need a mediator in order to enjoy a relationship with the holy God. Because God is holy and because we're not We need a mediator if we're going to enjoy a relationship with him. You know, as I wrote that down this week, I originally just said we need a mediator to have a relationship with God, and I changed it because here's the reality. Everyone has a relationship with God. It's unavoidable. No one really stands outside of any kind of relationship with God. Hunter read the scripture earlier that we'll come back to in 1 Peter 2. At one point in time, you were not his people. That was the relationship. You were his enemies. You had a relationship. It just wasn't a good one. Now you are his people. He's brought you into his family. He's brought you into his church. And if you and I are going to enjoy a relationship with the holy God, then we certainly need a mediator. We need a go-between. So that's the big idea. Let's read Exodus 19, and then we'll try to make sense of what we see in the text. The Word of God says this, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, 
they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai is wrapped, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, our minds race as we read these words and we try to imagine the scene and the smells and the sights and the, the trembling of the earth. Father, as we think about your glory descending on this mountain and your people trembling below. Father, we pray for eyes to see the truth about you. We pray for eyes to see the truth about ourselves. Father, we know that we are like these people and that we're sinners, but we know that you save sinners and you bring them into a relationship through your grace. And Father, we pray for, for eyes to see that truth and hearts to receive it. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what this passage teaches us about Jesus and that ultimately we would fix our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you can remember when you were a child and you had a big day coming up, something that you were really, really excited about. Maybe it was your birthday and you were counting down the days until you turned 10 or 7 or whatever it may be. Maybe it was Christmas and you got more and more excited and you kept asking your parents, can we open a present early? Can we open a present early? What am I going to get for Christmas? And you remember that. Maybe it was the last day of school for you. And you had the countdown going. If you're a teacher, you're nodding your head. You're like, we got the countdown going already. We're ready for summer. Whatever the big day was, you can probably remember as a child looking forward with anticipation and thinking about a big day and thinking about how excited you were for what was coming. And the reality is you can probably think of times in your life where you experienced that not just as a child but also as an adult. Maybe it was a vacation coming up and you just couldn't wait to go on this vacation or maybe it was retirement and you were looking forward to the, the last day of work at a job or whatever it may be. You, you have a day out there in the future and you're excited about it and your mind's focused on it and you're thinking about it. That's the picture of the people here. If you look at Exodus 19.11, God says, be ready for the third day. 
The third day is the day. These people have seen some amazing things. They've gone through amazing experiences. But now the Lord speaks to them through Moses and he says, on the third day, it's going to be good. And so the people begin to prepare and the the excitement begins to build and the the whispers are spread throughout the camp of what's going to happen, what's it going to be like, what do you think's going to go down on the mountain? And everyone's excited looking for this big day to come. And in the back and forth, as we build up to the day where Moses is going up to talk to God for the people and then he comes back down and he talks to the people for God, we learn some amazing, central, basic, foundational, you got to know them truths. I mean, you just got to have your brain wrapped around these ideas about who God is, but also how God thinks about his people. And like I said, we've talked about sin over and over and over in this series. We've just drummed at home. The people can't do it. They can't do it. They fail. They grumble. They complain. And we're going to see that again this morning. But we also see some remarkable truths about how God views his people when he saved them. And our goal this morning is to understand a little bit more clearly what does Exodus 19 teach me about God and what does it teach me about how God sees me as one of his people and how is it that we're able to enjoy a relationship with the God who is holy. So let's start with this question. What does Exodus 19 teach us about the Lord? And the first thing I want you to see is that the Lord is the creator. He's the creator. You're not going to find that exact word in this passage, but if you look at the last six words of verse 5, you read this. For all the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. We talked about this just a few minutes ago in my Sunday school class. We're in Acts 17 where Paul goes to Athens and he sees this city filled with all of these idols. In the ancient world, people had this idea that a god or a goddess was sort of limited in their abilities, limited in their power. And maybe it was limited to a specific temple. Maybe it was limited to a certain responsibility that they had. Maybe it was limited to a certain geographic area. There was this idea of this is the God of this area and that's the God of that area. And the Lord is speaking to his people and understand he is trying to reshape their worldview. He's trying to reshape the way that they think about him. And he says to them, all the earth is mine. There are no boundaries There's no barrier that I'm going to bump up against where I'm going to run out of power or influence or ability. It's all mine. And listen, that seems maybe obvious to you and just basic and redundant, but these people have spent four centuries in Egypt where they believed in any number of gods and goddesses, and they all had their very specific responsibilities and geographic places of influence and temples where they could do things, and it was all very limited and contained. And God is just trying to blow all of that up. And he's trying to say, I'm not like any of the other gods that you're familiar with. I'm not like any of the other goddesses that you've been worshiping. All the earth is mine. I made it. It all belongs to me. And I have sovereignty and dominion and sway and power over every last corner of it because he's the creator. Secondly, the Lord is the redeemer. He's the one who redeemed his people. And verse 4 may be my favorite verse in the passage. And it's my favorite verse, I think, because I at times have a weird sense of humor. And I would love to see the look on the people's faces when they heard these words. Verse 4. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. That's okay. And then God says, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. These are people who just spent the last three months walking, complaining about it, grumbling about it, hungry about it. And I got to think that there was some of them that kind of rolled their eyes and said, eagle's wings, right? That's why my feet hurt. That's why we're tired. That's why we've been complaining. The in-flight service was terrible. We didn't get the peanuts we wanted. We didn't get the meat pots we had back in Egypt. God is saying to his people, if you can get outside of your situation for a minute and you can have a little bit of perspective, I hope you can understand how I have picked you up out of this land and brought you to myself, and I did it all along the way. You didn't have to fight. You didn't have to sign a petition for Pharaoh to to let you go. You didn't have to do community activism, political activism. You didn't have to take up arms. You didn't do any of it. I did all of it. It's as if I picked you up on the wings of an eagle and brought you to myself. God's taking the credit for it. And what he's saying to the people is, I'm the Redeemer. You see a great picture of this idea if you like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. As Tolkien told the story, he'd, he weaved different biblical themes into these stories. And several times in the books or the movies, the characters, the hero, they're just at their wit's end. There's nothing more they can do. You're thinking to yourself, this is it. This is when this great story turns into a tragedy, when all of a sudden, the eagles swoop in. And nobody can call them. Nobody can control them. Nobody expects them to show up. They just all of a sudden come and they rescue the people and they lift them up out of danger and they carry them to safety and then everyone just sort of lives happily ever after. And it's a picture of salvation that's completely outside yourself. Nobody signed a petition to get the eagles there. Nobody called them. They just show up when they want to show up. And that's what God's saying to his people. I've redeemed you just like that. You didn't ask for it. You weren't looking for me. I just swooped in and got you. And I've brought you every step along the way to safety. And he says, I've brought you to myself. He wants the people to know that he's the creator and that he's the redeemer. And then he begins to talk about the people. And so far we've seen these people grumble, complain, bellyache, threaten to go back to Egypt, wish they were back in Egypt, talk about how God has brought them out into the wilderness to kill them. It's not been a pretty picture. And as God starts to describe who his people are, you may expect it to be really harsh. You may expect God to be really upset with them. And the things that he says are so filled with grace for these wicked people that you can't miss it. So what does Exodus 19 teach us about God's people? Several things. Number one, Israel was God's treasured possession. His treasured possession. You see that phrase in verse 5. He says, you will be my treasured possession. The exact same words in the Hebrew. It's translated differently, but the exact same words in the Hebrew show up if you look at 1 Chronicles 29. David is getting ready to, to build a temple, or he's getting ready for his son to build a temple, and he's collected all this valuable stuff to go into the temple. And 1 Chronicles 29 says that David took stuff out of his treasury, literally out of his treasured 
possession, like the king's bank account, what's most valuable to the king, he takes out of that and sets it aside for this temple. And it's the same word used here where God's talking about Israel. He says, you are going to be my treasured possession. The idea is that God is essentially playing favorites, and that may make you uncomfortable, but that's what he's doing. And it shouldn't surprise you if you've been reading the story starting in Genesis. God saved Noah and his family, no one else. He showed up and made a covenant with a man named Abram. He didn't make that covenant with anyone else. He swooped in, as it were, with the wings of an eagle and rescued Israel out of slavery and redeemed them to be his people. He didn't do that with any other nation. And what he's saying to them is, our relationship is unique. You are going to be my treasured possession. Unless you or I get confused about it, unless we say, well, it's because these were good folks because these were God-fearing folks, or it's because these folks, you know, they earned it somehow, or they deserved it somehow. The book of Deuteronomy, God uses this exact phrase again, treasured possession, and he says to the people, you are my treasured possession, and it's not because you were looking for me, and it's not because you were a great, numerous, powerful nation. You are my treasured possession because I love you. That's it. That's what makes you my treasured possession. Not anything that you have done, but simply the fact that my love rests on you. And he says to these grumbling malcontents, number one, you are my treasured possession. Number two, he says to this same group of people, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. And the idea of the priesthood is pretty simple. It's not fully developed yet in the story of the Old Testament, but the priest's job is to represent the people before God. The priest goes into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And the Lord says to his people, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. The idea is you're going to represent all of the other peoples, all of the other nations before me. If you want to flip it around backwards, you could say it this way. If all the other nations and all the other peoples want to know me, they're going to have to come through you. You are going to be a kingdom of priests. Look, you get a glimpse of this if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 9. 2 Chronicles 9. Solomon, who I just mentioned a minute ago, Solomon has taken over. He succeeded his father David. He's ruling, and he's not at the point where everything derails. Everything's going really well. And the queen of Sheba leaves her home and comes to listen to Solomon and to marvel at his wisdom. That's a a picture. It's like a preview of what God wanted to happen. He wanted all the other nations to see how great everything was in Israel, to look at these people who feared the Lord, to look at this kingdom of priests, and to come to him, to the Lord, through the people. And you get this preview of it. In 2 Chronicles 9, where this queen from a foreign nation comes and she just marvels at Solomon and listens to his wisdom and listens to him talk about the Lord and she's marveling at it and she's amazed by it. And it's a picture of this. The problem is, Israel was not always acting like a kingdom of priests. They didn't always represent the Lord well in this way. 
And many times there wasn't any opportunity for these foreign nations and foreign peoples to come through Israel because instead of acting like a kingdom of priests, they were acting like everybody else. I asked Hunter to read the scripture earlier that he read from 1 Peter 2 because in that passage, Peter says, you, not the nation of Israel, not a geopolitical state, but you, believers, the church, you are now a kingdom of priests. If the world outside who doesn't know the truth about God is going to make their way to him, they're going to have to come through you. Your job is to represent them in some way. And the flip side of that relationship is the last description of Israel. Israel was to be a holy nation. It's another phrase that Peter lifts out of the Old Testament and he applies to the church and he says, not only are you a kingdom of priests, but you're to be a holy nation. You're to be set apart for a special purpose. And that purpose is not only do the people come through you to have access to the Lord, but you are to be this light for the people. You're to represent God to everyone else. When they look at you, they're going to learn something about the Lord. And again, the problem with Israel is that they were a lousy light. And Peter is saying to you and to me, we're no longer dealing in geopolitical realities when we talk about a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're talking about the church. You are that kingdom. You are those priests. You are that holy nation that has been set apart for the purpose of representing God to the world. So to these grumbling, ungrateful, continually backsliding people, God looks at them before he ever gives them a commandment. And he says to them, this is who you are. You're my treasured possession. You're a kingdom of priests. And you're a holy nation. That leads us to this next idea, and that's where things get kind of dicey in Exodus 19. You need to understand that only a holy people can enjoy God's presence. That goes back to our big idea. Only holy people can enjoy God's presence. Israel wasn't holy. You can look in the text and you can say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about verse 10 and verse 14 where it says Moses consecrated them? I, I know, I read it. You say, what about verse 10 where they wash themselves? They all hit the laundromat. Get your clothes cleaned. you got to be clean for the third day. Yeah, I know. I see that verse. And you may say, well, look at verse 15 where Moses says, abstain from sexual relationships for these three days. you got to get ready. you got to be focused. you got to be set aside. I see all that. But you know as well as I do that none of these things made these people intrinsically holy. And if you've read the story, you certainly don't have any questions up to this point that these people are not holy. They're thoroughly sinful. The problem is only holy people can enjoy God's presence. And then a, a big problem gets made even worse because Israel promises to keep all the terms of the covenant. Did you see that in verse 8? This is in the, the back and forth as Moses is going down and he's coming up. And Moses comes down and he says, here's the deal. The Lord's going to speak to us. He's going to give us the terms of the covenant. And the people respond in verse 8 and they say this. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. You know that they haven't done it up to this point. And if you've read ahead, 
you know that while Moses is actually up on the mountain getting the ten words, the ten commandments, the people are down at the bottom breaking them. And you know that the very people who raise their hand and solemnly make this pledge, we will do all the Lord commands, they're the very same people that in a very short while God will look at them and banish them from the promised land and banish them to the wilderness. And you're left with this dilemma of God is calling these people to obey and they're pledging to do everything that God says and yet we know they don't have it in them. They don't. I just want you to remember that one of the people standing here in this back and forth when the people say we're going to do it, one of the people standing there is Joshua. And he's going to lead the people when Moses is gone. And at the end of his life, After he's led the people into the promised land and they've begun to spread out and settle in the land, Joshua's going to get everyone together for one last speech, and it's going to be a whiz-bang speech. I mean, he's going to fire them up. It's going to be, you know, just classic preaching, and he's going to put this charge to them, and he's going to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. And look what we read in Joshua 24. The people say this, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We also will serve the Lord. Remember Joshua said, me and my house. And they say, us too. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. You've got this great sermon, and you've got this great charge at the end, and the people make the right response, and look what Joshua says. Can we put it up? He says, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he's a holy God. You can't do it. And he knows it from experience. Because he stood with the very same group of people. And he listened to them as Moses went back and forth. And Moses says, this is what you're called to do. And they said, we're going to do it. Every word. And he's seen it before. He's, He's not his first rodeo. He knows how it plays out. And he looks at the people and he says, you can't. Not you won't, but you can't. Because he's holy and you're sinful. And it's never going to work out that way. Which brings us to an interesting problem. Only holy people can enjoy God's presence. They've said the right thing and that they're going to keep the commandments. But we know they're not. We know they can't. And that brings us to Moses. Moses served as a mediator between the Lord who is holy and the people who were sinful. He's the go-between for the people in this passage. God doesn't speak directly to them. He speaks to Moses, and Moses takes the word to the people. And the people don't speak directly to God. They're trembling in fear. They say, Moses, you go tell God what we said, and they send Moses up. And he's this, this mediator. But there's this strange dynamic in the relationship. I hope you're just sort of uneasy with the tension here. God loves these people. He's redeemed these people. He even said, I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself And they finally get out there, and what does God say? Don't come close. Stay away. It's it's like if you had a friend who invited you over for dinner. And they said, we're going to have a big dinner. We're going to have a cookout. What's your favorite meal? And you tell them, and they say, I'm going to cook your favorite food. It's going to be great. We're going to have a good time of fellowship. And you go over to their house, and you ring the doorbell, and they just sort of crack the door open and look at you. And say, I'm going to need you to eat out on the sidewalk, please. I mean, I know I invited you over, but I'm going to need you to stay away. 
Maybe to put it in terms a tiny bit closer to God and his people, imagine you get a card in the mail and it says you've been invited to the White House for a state dinner. They're going to roll out the red carpet just for you. Your presence is requested. Would you please be 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue this day and this time? And you show up, you got your Sunday best on, you wash your clothes, you're ready, you're consecrated, it's all great. And you get there and you show up at the gate and they point you to a table out on the sidewalk and they say, you're going to be eating here. Not in there, but out here. You would say, well, why even bring me this far? I thought there was going to be some kind of fellowship, some kind of relationship. And that's the picture. God's told these people, I'm bringing you out to myself. You're my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You just need to stay away. You can't come close. And God's teaching his people something very, very important that we need to learn. And the lesson is that sinful people just can't waltz into God's presence and enjoy it. You just waltz into God's presence, God says you're going to be destroyed. You can't handle it. My wrath will be poured out against you for your sin. I know you've been consecrated. I know you did the whole three days things and and you went to the laundromat and you're all clean and you look great on the outside and you stayed away from your husbands and your wife to focus. I know all that stuff, but I know your heart. And you got to stay back. There's a barrier and you can't come. And you say, yeah, but they had Moses, right? Well, he's part of the problem. He's part of the problem. Moses couldn't be the go-between for the people. He gives us this picture that we need a mediator, but ultimately Moses isn't able to bridge this divide. And thankfully, when we come to the book of Hebrews, we find the answer. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as greater than Moses. Greater than Moses. That may be the understatement of the century, but that's about how the book of Hebrews puts it. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, just the opening verse here. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He did something similar to what Moses did, but far greater than what Moses did. Moses shows you this picture that you need somebody to to intervene in the relationship, but Moses ultimately couldn't do it. Jesus is the one who could do it. Fully man fully God, lived a life of sinless perfection so that he could enter the presence of God on your behalf. He bore your sins on the cross as your mediator. He paid the penalty and the the price and the punishment as a sinless substitutionary sacrifice so that you and I, sinful people, could enjoy a relationship, enjoy a relationship with the holy God. And so that the Holy God doesn't have to look at us and say, you need to stay back. You need to stay away. Because you're a sinful person and I'm a holy God and there can be no fellowship there. It's completely different through Jesus, the mediator who's greater than Moses. You're not kept at arm's distance anymore. You're welcomed into God's presence. And at the end of Hebrews, the author comes back to this idea in chapter 12, and the author is comparing what it was like under Moses at Mount Sinai and what it's like under Jesus, the greater Moses. Look at this passage. He says, You have not come to what may be touched, 
something physical, like a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet, all those details should be firing off in your head, saying, wait a minute, that's exactly what happened at Sinai. The fire and the smoke and the trumpet was getting louder and louder. A voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the old. Here's the new. You have come to Mount Zion, not Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. Literally, it says, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses is giving us a picture of what we need, but in the end, it wasn't what we needed. You don't need Moses. You need Jesus. You need a mediator of a new covenant. You need somebody who has the ability to take the spirits of the righteous and make them perfect. You know, the Bible says that when you as a sinner confess your sin for what it is and trust in the finished work of God, you are made righteous. You're declared righteous. That's called justification. God declares you to be righteous. And the Bible says the day is coming and you will know where you as a justified person will die and you'll make your way to the presence of God and you will no longer be a sinner who's just been declared righteous, but you will be glorified. You will be made perfect. And the book of Hebrews is saying that's what Jesus can do for you as the true mediator. Not just as a go-between relaying a message, but as somebody who lived for you and somebody who died for you, somebody who's interceding for you now and somebody who one day has the ability to usher you into the presence of God, not where you're kept at arm's length, but where your sin has been fully paid for, fully atoned for, where there's no longer anything standing between you and the holy God and you're welcomed into that place. My prayer for you this morning is that you know Jesus as the mediator of a better covenant. You may know the Ten Commandments. You know, may know the story of the Exodus. You may know all the, the Bible stories about Jesus. But you may not know him as the mediator of a new covenant. You may be on the outside looking in, in all reality, kept at an arm's distance because left to yourself, you cannot enjoy the presence of a holy God. And my prayer is that you would leave this place today saying what Peter said in, in 1 Peter, once you were not God's people, but now you're his people. Not because you earned it, but because Jesus is your mediator. Some of you enjoy that relationship now. My prayer for you is that you see the magnitude of it. You see the, the bigness of it. You see how mind-blowing it is that God himself would come down and do everything necessary to take grumbling ungrateful malcontents like these people and like these people and to bring them in as his treasured possession and to say you are a kingdom of priests to me and you are a holy nation all of those things true because Jesus is the mediator 
of a new and a better covenant. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your grace and we are grateful for your mercy. We acknowledge you as the creator. We acknowledge you as our redeemer. Father, we rejoice that Jesus has done everything that needed to be done for sinful people to enjoy your presence. Father, and we acknowledge this morning that we cannot come to you on our own terms. Our sin separates us from you. Our sin makes us objects of your wrath. Father, and by your grace, through your Son, we have the opportunity to be treasured possessions to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, to be your people when once we were not your people. Father, I pray that every person in this room understand that. I pray that every person in this room be excited about that. Father, as we take a moment to sing and to respond and to reflect on who you are and what you've done for us, we pray that you alone would be at the center of our hearts and our minds and our worship.